Welcome to the podcast. I dissect important topics in culture, politics, and media through the lens of critical thinking, not tiresome hyperbole, annoying partisanship, or ridiculous demagoguery. Like the Marines, we are the few and the proud, independent, free-thinking voices out there. But the voice of reason still must be heard. If you want to escape the filter bubble of endless groupspeak and shaming as well as the herd mentality of my way or the highway, you are home. Here we seek first to understand, then to draw conclusions. It doesn't matter what you think. Just that you think deeply and be open to all perspectives. I will learn from you. You will learn from me openly and honestly with empathy for all viewpoints. In short, we will be critical thinkers here. I am David Hopkins, professor of humanities, your guide. My goal is to apply critical thinking, logic, reasoning, and analysis of philosophy and history to add context and understanding to our modern world. But enough with the formalities of introduction. Let's get started. Can we talk for a minute? Democracy does not work. You know, it is a profound, almost sacrilegious statement to even mention democracy doesn't work. But what I want to do is to look back to the ancients and what Socrates, as Pluto discussed in the Republic, talked about the challenges and the fears of democracy, and then also have a look at a French philosopher and who actually came to America during the rise of the United States in its early stages. But the reality is there definitely is something going on because there is a current crisis of trust in our representative democracy. 59% of the people have little to no confidence other Americans will make the right choices in voting. This is the highest level ever recorded. 73% of Democrats and Republicans not only can't believe that there is a compromise, but they literally say that they can't even agree on what is fact. This is incredibly scary and shows the problems unleashed by news media and monetization of cable news, talk radio, online sources where Facts are often geared towards the audience that consumes it, not what is non-partial and actually true. This is why, in general, I don't see cable news reporters as reporters, but rather activists. Someday I'll go into the whole media complex fake news as it needs a full analysis, a completely separate podcast. But for now... Let's look at Plato and Socrates and some later philosophers. They, they literally nailed some of the huge problems that are happening in our democracy. Even before I begin, it's critical that you understand I wouldn't want to live under any other system. I surely wouldn't want to live in a communist re- regime, a socialist regime. 
I've served our country in the military. I love our country. I love democracy. But the reality is there are serious, serious problems that are going on. And if we don't analyze what we don't do well, we can't get better. So first, let's just start out with book six of The Republic. So if you're really into this topic, grab a copy of The Republic by Plato and specifically just flip forward to book number six. You don't even need to buy it. Actually, The the Republic, you can get free online open source versions of, the, of this particular work. And it's just great in that. But I want to talk about just one story from this book in particular. And I always use this uh, for any of my my prior students or current students who might be listening. They know this lecture because I talk about it a lot. But in book six of the Republic, you know, Socrates is falling into conversation, which most of his works really are nothing more than a, a give and take conversation back and forth. And so he's in a conversation with a man named Adamantus, and he's really trying to get him to see the flaws of democracy. And he does this by kind of comparing democracy or a society to a ship. And if you were heading out on a journey by sea, Socrates asks him, who would you want ideally in charge of this vessel to navigate you from point A to point B safely? Would you want anyone that's just, you know, off the street? Or would you prefer to have someone educated in the rules, the demands, the technicalities of seafaring? Well, of course, Adamantus says, well, if I'm in the middle of the sea and I need a sea captain to get me safely from point A to point B, I, I surely want someone who's trained in how to do this to make sure that we arrive there safely and efficiently and effectively. And so then Socrates turns around and says, well, if that's the case, shouldn't it be exactly the same way when we choose a ruler of the country? This brings up an important point. And I'm going to use an example in modern terms and we see this all the time and I'm going to read a couple headlines here to kind of make my point uh, from the hill uh, the headline reads Republicans target voter registration drives with new state laws and just to be fair on the Democratic side Andrew Gillum launches massive voter registration campaign to turn Florida blue. Now, in general, you'd say, well, what is wrong with that? You would think we would all want to have everybody registered to vote. The bigger and larger number of people that vote, well, then obviously the more representative the democracy is of the people of the country in which is voting. However, if we go back to Socrates just registering any old person to vote. Let's say somebody, Gillum or maybe a Republican, targets a 55-year-old person never registered to vote. You dug them out of somewhere, you found them, and you registered them to cast a vote. And you registered them as either a Democrat or a Republican. 
but in the last three decades, they never bothered one time in their entire life to register themselves to vote. How educated, if you had to make a guess, would you assume that person is on making proper, rational, objective policy decisions? The reality is neither the Democrats nor the Republicans care one iota whether that person will be a good voter. They just want a voter. And actually, if you think about it, the Democrats and the Republicans both, each of these parties probably, if they were being brutally honest, would say the best voter for their party is the completely uneducated voter that no matter what will pull the lever for either Republican or Democrat. It doesn't matter who the candidate is. That's the kind of voter they want. So back to Socrates. Socrates makes the point that voting in an election, it is a skill. It's not some random intuition. And like any skill, it needs to be taught systematically to the people. Letting the citizens vote without any education or any care or any analysis of the policy, the politician, the impact is just like putting someone in charge of a sailing ship in a storm who literally has no concept of how to navigate a ship. And you know in that case the chance for a horrific tragedy and shipwreck goes up dramatically. And to Socrates, the same thing happens when we have an uneducated voting block of people who don't think independently, but rather just pull a, pull a lever for one or the other without giving it much thought at all. It's important, too, that you understand Socrates. He was, he was no elitist. He didn't believe that a narrow few should only vote. He did, however, insist that only those who had thought about issues rationally and deeply should be let near a vote. Because if they didn't care enough to educate themselves, to show open-mindedness and analyze situations, they probably need not be anywhere near casting a vote. This is the opposite of our democracy and our mindset in this country in general right now. We tend to think the opposite way. We tend to think this idea of the representative democracy and the larger the block, the better things are. And that is not necessarily the case in making the most educated decision. It's not that we should attempt to suppress voters. It's not that we should attempt to block out either racial or socioeconomic or gender biases. Everyone who educates himself should have the equal opportunity to vote. But that wasn't the concern of Socrates. The Socrates concern was that our, our citizenry truly educating themselves or are they following in 
and along the lines of demagoguery, which is our next topic. Because for Socrates, this was one of the scariest concerns. And he said democracy can very easily lead to something that is called demagoguery. And we've really forgotten this distinction between an intellectual democracy and a democracy by birthright. You know, we, we've given the vote to everyone without connecting it to any sort of wisdom. And Socrates knew exactly where that would lead and it would lead to something called demagoguery. And I want to define this term so that we all fully get it. Because some of you that may be very far on the left or very far on the right, you may automatically say, oh, yes, of course, that's the Democrats, that's the Republicans, that's whatever. But let's let's break this down, what we actually mean and what Socrates was speaking about with this term. So a demagogue, which is demos, if we break the word down in, in Greek, the people... And agogos, which is leading. So the people leading. And who this is, it's basically a leader who makes use of power, of popular prejudices, false claims, and promises in order to gain power. Let that sink in for just one minute. It's a leader who makes use of popular prejudices, false claims, and promises in order to gain power. It's a leader that champions the cause of the of the people in ancient times in a manipulative way. And it's often associated with dictators and, and they're appealing in general, in general to the worst nature of people. Demagoguery, it's not based on reason. It's not based on even the issues. And it's not necessarily based on doing the right thing. It's based on stirring up Two things, fear and hatred to control people. Stirring up fear and hatred to control the people. I mean, really, I don't even need to give you examples. Every single day in the news, you can choose your own examples yourself. And you can choose those from the left and from the right. And if you're having any trouble finding the stirring up and fear and hatred... Turn on CNN for 35 minutes, and then after you're done, just out of good nature, turn on Fox News for 35 minutes, and you're going to get stirring up of fear and hatred. They both do it. That's why I don't consider them news. I consider both of them activists, which is more realistic when you turn them on. And I don't want to go off on a tangent here about the news media because I, I want to do a whole separate podcast on this but you know and I know you're not listening to cable news to get the news you you're doing that to feed your own position in general if you've got on those hard extreme cable news networks because there's no news on those channels it doesn't exist and so they're a perfect example of this stirring up fear and hatred 
I mean, you turn on cable news for 10 minutes and you can, your blood pressure probably goes up and you're nervous and anxious and mad and excited and whatever the feeling might be. It's horrific, horrific for your mental health. But I think I probably need to jump off that news media thing before I fly off on a tangent that I can't come back to. So let's go ahead and get back. You know, in the end, the final point on Socrates really, you know, we've forgotten all about these warnings about democracy. Democracy is the greatest, but we can't forget that there's, there's blind spots. There's chinks in the armor. And if we're not careful to defend against them, it can literally bring down the entire system. You know, we like to think that, democracy as it exists in the United States of America it's this unambiguous good and it is good but there's a process that is it's only as effective as the education system and the citizens who vote around it Plato even said once democracy is a charming form of government full of variety and disorder and dispensing a sort of equality to equals and unequal alike. It is a big old messy, crazy, wonderful thing, but it can get very, very dark and almost more oppressive in some ways than more authoritarian regimes if we're not careful with it. Another thing when we look at democracy and we look at Plato and the Republic, you know, there's an argument to be made that the poorest classes often suffer the most in democracy. The outward facing thing is one way, but behind the scenes and underneath it, there's some scary things that need to be brought to light. The first one, virtually every citizen has the chance to be elected to populate the government. This is a fact. Any one of us could choose to run. But the reality is, on the ground, in real life, only elites seem to have the chance of being elected. The money that it takes to get elected is staggering. So if you don't have the connections, the influence, the money, your chance of being elected is slim to none. We just don't see rags to riches to president like that. It doesn't work like that. You need incredible resources and connections to have a chance to be part of the governing hierarchy. The second reason poor classes suffer, the democratic person is inherently unable to really feel shame for being unable to rise above personal desire to satisfy their own wants versus calculation of long-term issues. This is just reality for all of us. We tend to put our own personal self-interest above the needs of the country. And democracy kind of puts us in that place. 
And we know this is true because politicians will play any number of games promising any number of things to try to get themselves elected. The third issue with democracy that impact the poorest classes is frequent elections don't lead to stability of a government. Think about this. And we'll just take the last two elections. We don't we could go back all the way if we wanted to. Barack Obama, elected president, when he was elected, the Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. He got through one major signature legislation, and that was the Affordable Care Act. Whether you like it or don't like it, this isn't time for debate that, but he got that major legislation through. Two years later, the Democrats lost the House. Four years later, they lost the Senate. After he passed that one major legislative piece, never again did he pass any meaningful legislation of any sort. He didn't have the ability to do it. Donald Trump takes office. Last president, current president right now. He's elected. The Republicans have the White House, the House of Reps, and the Senate. He got through one major piece of legislation, a tax cut. Two years later, lost the House to the Democrats. No major legislation passed. On the one hand, giving people the ability to turn over the government they're not satisfied with is a good thing. But on the downside, it leaves the country in a constant state of change. And so these elections come with very short-term interests involved. Let's contrast that right now with the most hardcore communist regime in the world, China. That president is there for life. He can build a two-year, a five-year, a 10-year, a 20-year plan, strategic plan for his country. He built, It's built on a stability that they can do things in the long term. They can strategically think out. In the United States of America, in our current democracy, our politicians can't think more than two years in advance. Because every two years, the potential of the federal government turning over is a real thing. So, of course, since the politicians' jobs can be on the line every couple years, they tend to appeal to very short-term interests of the voters, not the long-term interests. I mean, they will talk and they will talk about generations and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and blah, 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 and they'll talk it, but their actions never speak it. Their actions never match it because they can't. They know after they say the words that sound really good, they know for a fact behind the scenes that they may not be there in two years if they don't just appeal to the short-term interests, and that leads to insane waste, pork barrel spending, and I think we all know what that is. These little uh, incentive-laden votes trying to splay cash around to this district or that district 
you scratch my back on this vote, I'll scratch yours on another, that kind of garbage. And that does not help the poorer classes at all. So those are problems in our democratic system. And we don't really have an answer for them, really, when you think about it. But Alex de Tocqueville, going from the Greeks all the way to the 1830s. Fascinating philosopher, French philosopher, uh, traveled to America in 1831. So America, um, through the Civil War, on the rise, getting bigger, gaining traction, um, overthrew Britain, and, and, and it's now a country, it's growing, and he came to the United States, and he's seeing democracy develop, and in, in 1835, after he visited in 1831, he wrote, a, he wrote a work called Democracy in America, and he was, it, it's fascinating to always look at these, these books and, and get the perspective of, of people of our own democracy when you're not a part of it. And on the one hand, he came away with a really profound appreciation for the ideas, the habits, the institutions uh, that made American democracy work. But I want to focus, and that's all great and I love it, but I want to focus on the downside of things because he looked and he said, you know, slavery and racism, boy, that may lead to some long-term conflicts down the road. <laughs> so, oh my goodness, is is that especially after all the riots we've went through with George Floyd and the and the things that we're seeing would have thought that'd be gone in 2020, but here we are. He noticed this in 18, 1835, and here we are in 2020, and it's still something that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, but curiously, and most importantly that I want to focus on in, in this, is this concept that freedom of speech which we have such a serious belief in. I mean, freedom of speech, that's a cornerstone for us. It's a cornerstone to our democracy. He said, that can lead to a lack of freedom of thought. Interestingly, Tocqueville noted that the power of the majority not just politically, but socially at the heart of democracy could become a form of tyranny even worse than some of the most ruthless and horrific rulers and monarchies in Europe. You know, it was noted that even a communist ruler or a king, for example, they can exercise physical control over a society. But Tocqueville added, you know, a democratic majority could actually get so perverse that they could control thought itself. And here's one quote. Quote, I know no country in which, speaking generally, there is less independence of mind and true freedom of discussion than in America. Wow. 
it almost seems completely contradictory on the surface. But if we stop to think, is it really that far off? I want to read that one more time. I know no country in which speaking generally, there is less independence of mind and true freedom of discussion than in America. And the argument goes something to the effect that America, we are susceptible, incredibly susceptible to the power of conformity because we talk so much about equality and we can actually disregard, causes us to regard distinction or being separate with suspicion. And the Tocqueville, he, he, Tocqueville even said, quote, when everything is more or less level, the slightest variation is noticed. And hence, there's a strange melancholy in the midst of abundance. End quote. That is scary that he would note something like that in 1831. Look at the social media world that we're in right now today. Anything slightly misstated or misinterpreted or outside the normal status quo herd mentality will get called out, possibly shout, shouted down and shut out. One, one more from Tocqueville. He says, quote, in America, the majority has enclosed thought within a formidable fence. A writer is free inside that area, but woe to the man who goes beyond it. The master no longer says, Think like me or die. He does say, you are free not to think as I do. You can keep your life and property and all, but from this day, you are a stranger among us. So we hold the facade. We hold the facade that we have this freedom of speech. But in reality, we only have freedom of speech as long as we conform to the herd that dominates society at any given moment. We are living in a time when the divergence between what people say in public and what people believe in their private lives is very different. It's almost as if when you're in public, you better be willing to say exactly what the society wants you to say and if you don't be prepared to be condemned I'm going to talk just a second about Black Lives Matter and this thing and this mantra that was going around something to the effect that if you did not get out, shout, and protest, if you are silent, you thus must be racist to the point that you better get out there and you better show yourself or say something because if you don't, 
you must be a racist. That's what Tocqueville was talking about. You put on that public face. We say we have freedom of speech. But oftentimes now in modern society, that just means you need to say exactly what society expects you to say when you need to say it. Because if you do not do it, you run the risk of being stamped out. And if you think about it, how often do we really say what we really think about politics, about religion? You know, those really important matters. I mean arguing about sports teams or arguing about fashion or arguing about music. I mean, Twitter is nothing but a, just a blathering sphere of argument and 80% of it's, you know, whatever doesn't really matter. But when you get to the really deep personal, intellectual, spiritual matters, we got to be real careful what we say. I mean, it can be liberal could be a conservative bubble that you live and if you go against that bubble you're gonna get called out it's just kind of the way things go the herd group spree group speak it's very very strong in fact it's not even freedom it's a form of slavery a new form of slavery an intellectual and mental form of slavery instead of physical but it is slavery nonetheless so how do we overcome this this characteristic of american discourse that tends to lump everybody into one big mass there is a solution but we're not going to find it in the democrat or the republican party and it's it won't definitely won't be found in social media filter bubbles and i guarantee you you won't find it in cable tv news activists you know it requires things it requires reading it requires studying it, it requires thinking from alternative sources and using our mind to evaluate critically outside the roar of the demagoguery noise spewed out daily. It really does sound kind of easy, but the problem is finding alternatives to what's out there and getting people to involve themselves and to train themselves and take baby steps to get better at it. Look, at the end of this, I would, I would never want to live in any other system that I feel so blessed and I feel so lucky to be born and raised here. However, it is relevant to ask, is our democracy reaching its full potential? Or is the demagoguery that happens in politics? And when you look at even Black Lives Matter, like I mentioned, there's some, I'm sure there's wonderful, amazing people in that group but there's surely a fringe who's basically saying you show up and you shout and you yell and if you don't do it you must be a racist not necessarily there's this bullying pulpit that is going on in society that you better join and if you don't join there's a problem 
you know, pushing all of our voices into one big mass. And you can say what you want as long as you don't dissent too much. I mean, is that really what this country is all about? Is that truly any different than, say, Venezuela or Cuba or China? Is it right in America to say, you can be you, but not too much of you? And you make sure that you conform to exactly what we're telling you to conform to. Is that free thinking? In essence, that kind of democracy is almost a perverse, disgusting form of communism. And in a world free thinking, in a world where free thinking is just truly valued, we wouldn't just have two political parties. We wouldn't have cable news activists opining their opinions and spinning stories. And you wouldn't be afraid to say what you really feel about an opinion. If you hesitate to give your opinion for a fear of standing out, of, of being attacked by the group, or any type of reprisal, you're not living in a true free speech world. You're being oppressed. So if you have ever hesitated and thought, ooh, I better not say that because if I say it, I might find myself attacked. You are being oppressed. And that's a problem. And that's a problem that we have in our American democratic system. So we need to recognize this. We not to shy away from it. We need to challenge ourselves to find places and voices that can truly appreciate freedom like our Constitution intended. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found value for the time you invested with me today. For discussion on this topic and many others, I invite you to join our private forums. I personally will be over there and engaging with everyone. And it's just a community of like-minded thinkers just like yourself. If you're not a member yet and looking for a community online that is very different, go to www.daviddhopkins.com. That's www.daviddhopkins.com. Follow the links and you can join us. You know, the best way to expand intellectually is to engage in a real dialogue in a way that fosters growth, understanding, and rigorous discussion without all the name-calling, demagoguery, and flame-throwing silliness of social media and the rest of society. This is what the private forum provides. I would love to see you join. Until the next episode, all my very best to you and your family.